Do you struggle to make decisions? Do you ever feel stressed, anxious, or exhausted by the barrage of choices you have to make on a daily basis? If that's you, you're in good company. For many Christians, decision fatigue is a daily reality, a challenge compounded by questions related to God's will, our desires, and His sovereignty over everything that happens to us. In our interview today, Amy Joseph and I discuss the theological framework that we all need to make decisions that honor God and conform us to His image. Amy spent many years directing women's discipleship and ministry at Redeemer Presbyterian Church and is currently serving alongside her husband to plant a church in San Diego, California. She's also the author of Demystifying Decision-Making, a practical guide from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. It's such a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about decision-making, how to think about it, how to do it, why it's so hard for us sometimes. Uh, But before we go there, I wonder if we could start with, have you ever struggled with uh, stress or anxiety related to decision-making in your own life? Yes, uh, absolutely. I, um, in fact, when I first had our, our, when our children were little, it just felt like it was hard to even decide what to make for lunch. Mm. It, just because life was so fast-paced and so I didn't have time to think. My brain was exhausted all the time, even just to figure out what to make for my children to eat or um, cereal aisles. Like I've had friends that have come back from being in foreign countries to be missionaries and come back and literally said they just broke down in tears in the cereal mm. aisle. Wow. Because it's just so many choices that we just take for granted right we don't even realize it it's just it's the white noise of our lives they're everywhere i mean even think about the way you order at starbucks i mean the the possibilities are endless or the the joke in college was we had two waffle houses that was (laughs) like our town had nothing but a college and some horses and some cows but we had two waffle houses and the waffle house menu i think they have a number on there it's something astounding number one million something choices of ways to have your hash brown that's just the hash browns, right? <laughs> that's that's an astounding number. And um, so, yeah, I think decision fatigue is real. Yeah. I think that in seasons it's more or less overwhelming. I think in seasons of grief, decision-making is incredibly um, is incredibly hard. Just simple decisions. You don't want to think about those things because your heart is so overtaken with trying to mm. think for the heavy things that you're processing. Um, it's very overwhelming to be a caregiver and make decisions. Mm. Um to be a mother and make decisions, to be a college student and make decisions. It is, it's a lot that our minds and our souls process on the daily. Yeah. And, and so obviously a lot of those things are things that uh, people, humans, let alone Christians, have been uh, dealing with for since the very beginning. Uh, but do you think there's something unique about our cultural moment right now that has perhaps forced on us more decisions than we used to have to make and led to an increase in anxiety and stress? Absolutely, absolutely. In the book, we kind of do a quick, quick overview survey of kind of like, well, how have pe- people approached decision making culturally from the past? And, you know, all kinds of things. There was a point where people used to think that um, decisions were made in the liver. Mm. And so they would do all kinds <laughs> wow. of crazy things to their livers yeah. to try to fit. I mean, crazy stuff. So people have been asking these questions for a really long time. Um, but one of the other things that I found most interesting in, re- in the process of writing this book was. Um, 
how big of a deal, uh, what kind of culture you come from and, and how that makes a difference on the way you decide and the amount of decisions that you make. And so um, there's this great book called uh, The 3D Gospel by Jason George. And, and he makes a distinction between how, basically how to preach the gospel um, and how the gospel is heard and received in three different kinds of culture. So he talks about um, honor-shame cultures, guilt-innocence cultures, and fear-power cultures. And um, we, in the West, in our moment right now, we're a smattering of kind of all of those, which mm. is strange. Um, but typically, if you live in a guilt-innocence culture, um, a Western civilization, you have um, a lot of autonomy and decision. We live in a high leisure culture. Um, we live in an incredibly compared to the rest of the world and the rest of history, rich time. Um, and so we have choices that no other cultures have had mm. in, in the past. Um, I, I referenced that my husband is Indian and his parents were raised in India and they were given two choices. Do you want to be a nurse or do you want to be a teacher if you're a woman? Mm. <laughs> and for him, his dad, his dad had been an engineer, his father's father. I mean, it was just, you're going to probably be an engineer. There yeah. weren't so many choices. They didn't make choices of who they married. They were arranged in marriage Um, and they're doing well, you know, many, many years into their marriage. And so um, we we don't live in a a communal culture anymore where our location determines our identity or where our family determines our identity and our choices. Um, We are not limited by those things. Right. We have transportation that flattens the world. We have technology that flattens the world and opens up to us all of these choices. Mm. Um, And we live in a culture that has enough wealth to be able to to make a lot of those things happen where a lot of a lot of families even in our own country don't have those choices and so um that's the dizziness part of the freedom that yeah. we live in so why do you think that is uh, it just it seems like if, if even if some of us feel stressed out by those decisions those options at times i'd be hard pressed to think that many of us would say well yeah i guess i'd prefer to give up all that stuff i'd rather be have an arranged marriage or be told what i need to do for a career so, so why do you think it is that uh those things that having more options isn't always uh, a less stressful more kind of fulfilling dynamic yeah yeah i think part of it is the complexity of our culture right now um i think that so the irony of all of this is that we we know as believers that Putting man at the center, putting self at the center is what caused the fall. And when we say the fall, we mean the fourfold fall. We mean mm. break with between God and man, break between man and man, break between man and himself, and break between man and the earth and the created order. Um, putting ma- man at the self, center at the self, created all of that. And somehow, I think our culture thinks if we keep c- center at the self— um, or self at the center, we can fix these things. Mm. And so I think that that's where it gets wonky. I don't think that choice is necessarily in and yeah. of itself wrong, but we don't have a framework anymore in our yeah. culture of, of understood and absolute truth. We don't have any anchoring. Um, and so as a, as, as a whole, as, as believers, we do. Um, and so I think what we're doing is we're putting a crushing weight on self that it was never meant to carry. Mm. Um, because it's, it's underneath all of that is this idea that you are the sum of your choices. Um, you get to, it's that you define your identity, right? This Mm. is, this is, you define you, you be whatever you want to be. That I think is the thing that we rub up against. And I think that's what sounds so sweet. It's like cotton candy, right? It sounds so good and it tastes good for a second, but it has no substance. It doesn't Mm. hold up. In fact, it creates crushing anxiety for people. Yeah. Yeah. That that seems like that is the, in this moment in particular, the kind of cultural mantra is, 
is not just you be you, but you make you. Mm-hmm. You kind of, in your decisions have the power to, to create yourself in whatever image you want to be created in. Yeah, and that's a lot of power to give a self. Um, that's a lot of power to give any self, but a young self, a young developing self, mm. um, an older hurting self. Um, that's a lot of power. And I, and I think um, that we don't recognize that. And I don't think we recognize how much we, we need a creator. We need a standard. We need help to make these decisions. We need to know that our decisions aren't the end all be all, that there's one who's guiding our mm. decisions. And just that idea of God being sovereign and providentially caring for his people, I think those are truths that we take for granted as believers mm. all the time. Like, well, Help us think about that, because that's, that's one of those classic uh, conundrums that mm-hmm. Christians, we often struggle with and try to wrap our minds around uh, to varying degrees of uh, success or satisfaction. But how should we understand our power, ability, responsibility to make decisions, to think carefully about choices with a belief that God is sovereign, that he really is in control, that nothing's happening apart from his will? How, how do you bring those two things together? Yeah, and I think that that is in one of the early chapters of the book we just talk about the the dilemma of decisions like it's a it's dizzying and it's a dilemma because it's not just a dilemma because there's a lot of them and it's exhausting it's a dilemma because when we try to think about it we bump into this mystery that our limited brains cannot wrap themselves around and it's this at the same exact time the scriptures tell us two things that man is a responsible moral agent. He makes real choices with real decisions in real time with real consequences. And yet God is a sovereign God who has ordained those decisions. Mm. And, and that is astounding. And we, what we want to do when we come to mystery is we want to either try to explain it away or make it an either or. We just want to truncate it because yeah. we don't want to bow before a mystery. <laughs> Although the Christian faith is replete with them. It is <laughs> yeah. full of them. Um, and so we want to go either or. And, and and we're tempted to do that. I think when we make decisions, we have temptations to go. And I think we have times where we go either way, where we focus too much. I'll be counseling, you know, students or, or women in the church and about a decision. And they're, they're weighing so heavily on man's responsibility mm. that they just need to be reminded God is sovereign. Like, the God who told the oceans, this is where you stop. <laughs> and you said, mountains, this is at how high you'll be. And the God who ordained gravity to work, f- to keep our feet on the earth, he already knows what, he's, he's in control. They mm. need to be reminded that there are other people then in other times, or the same people in different times, um, who are so, God is sovereign, right? And we hear this all the time with college students. Well, God is sovereign. He's going to figure out my job. I mean, He's going to take care of it when I graduate. And I'm like, yeah, but you have to write a cover letter. Like God is sovereign, but you apply to jobs. Like he uses your work. And so we tend to make it an either or and it's a both and. And one of the, a couple of the things that have helped me with that. One is um, A.W. Tozier says um, that when, when a non-believer looks at and thinks about the, the sovereignty of God, they say, oh my goodness, I'm a pawn. Right, because we think, am I just a pawn? Am I making decisions? And he says, when a believer understands God's sovereignty, he exclaims, "I'm a child! I'm a child!" Like that—that is what God's sovereignty means when we make decisions. Mm -hmm. And yet, we are responsible. And so, 
Packer, J.I. Packer, um, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, talks about this idea of it. It's called an antimony. We would we tend to call it a paradox, but it's actually an antimony. And so it's, what, What's the difference there? So a, a paradox are two seemingly, uh, I forget the exact definitional nuance, but in essence, Packer says, an antimony is two apparent truths that seem contradictory. Mm. And so, um, and the example for that would be um, light. So when I love reading about physicists and coming back to science here yeah see I do it's in me a little bit a little bit not enough to be good at it <laughs> enough to, to dabble um and so I'm reading about Einstein and so you know his trying in him and all his physicist friends trying to figure out that what is the nature of light and one would do an experiment and they would say it is wave it is a hundred percent wave it's got to be wave and everyone would sway that way and then the next scientist physicist would do an experiment and say uh no, I don't think it's wave. I think it's particle. And and it was back and forth and back and forth. And they were like, someone's got to be wrong. And back and forth and back and forth. And then they finally realized, no, it's both. Mm. It is both at the exact same time. And so yeah. that helps me not understand but get my mind around something can be both. Yeah. Light behaves like a wave and it behaves like a particle. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Um, and then A.W. Tozier has another analogy and he talks about a bird needs two wings to fly. And he says, if a bird just flaps one wing, he doesn't get anywhere. And so God is, God is sovereign. I am responsible. God is sovereign. I'm re- when you flap both wings, you can fly. When you, when you only have one little wing flapping all the time, it doesn't work. And mm. so um, it just helps me. Again, we're not going to understand these things until we get to glory. But, but that's one of the reasons that, that decision-making is confusing because we're going, did I really choose to put on a blue shirt today? Or did God sovereignly ordain that I would choose to put on a blue shirt today? Do, do I really have choice or do I not? And and so I think one way to help with that is to kind of pull back and to reframe the problem as a privilege. It is a privilege. It is a privilege given from God that we would be able to make decisions. Um, it is part of being stamped in his image. And so that we would be cognizant of the fact that we're making decisions is a gift from God. Mm. And so it just helped me in this process to kind of pull back and kind of push the idea of decision making through the framework of creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Yeah. So when you do it like that, in, in God's created order, he said, I don't want to make robots. I want to make a people that will choose to worship me, that will love me willingly. Um, and he said, I'm going to give them real choice. And in the garden, he gave Adam and Eve real choice, right? That was an incredible privilege given to Adam and Eve, make, stand in the image of a triune God, to be able to make decisions. Um, fall. We botched it. As we said earlier, we put ourselves right smack in the center of it and said, no thanks. You're not my authority. I'll be my authority. I'll decide what's good and evil. I want to know, right? We put ourselves in the center of that, made an atrocious decision, and and have been experiencing it ever since then, right? So we made a terrible choice, and there was a terrible consequence to that choice. And from that time, our choosers were broken. We weren't going to choose what was right and good. We were were broken people, and the Old Testament shows that, right? We see Mm. God saying, here it is, Moses, I'm setting before you two, two ways. One leads to life, one leads to death, one leads to blessing, and one leads to curse. And he, even he is failing at doing it, right? And so we're set up for this, okay, creation, fall. We're, we're given the right to choose. We've botched it up. We keep choosing wrongly. And then Christ comes. He chooses <laughs> to come to this earth, mm-hmm. to step in as the incarnate one. And he makes choices that are always and only honoring to God, right? He makes these choices. And then 
he gets the sum of our bad choices. So he makes every right choice, and he takes upon him. He chooses to lay his life down, right? No one takes his life from him. Mm. He says, I lay it down. I'm choosing to pick up my cross. Um, And he dies so that we can choose again, so that we can make decisions again that honor him, Mm. to make a way back to God. Um, And so because of that, because of redemption, we are not the sum of our choices anymore. We are the sum of his righteous choices. Mm. That actually, rather than letting us live in licentiousness and do whatever we want, that frees us and compels us, right, to say, now I want to make, now I, I want to, and I'm free to make choices that honor God, uh, make choices, enjoy the, my, my agency that God had given me, that Christ has bought back for me. And that one day there will be a time where we will only make good choices. Mm. We will only make choices in light of, of the father and his glory and not ourselves and our comfort or our fear or our paralyzing, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so it just helped me to go, what a privilege. Rather than starting with this is a problem, it is a privilege that we are made in the image of God that he would let us choose. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, so, so then speak to the person who, maybe the Christian listening right now, who, who says, I get that. I believe that, that, uh, that that's all true. Uh, but it doesn't feel like a privilege. These decisions that I'm, I'm having to make they often feel very stressful mm-hmm. and overwhelming, and and what's more, it's not just that it's that they're overwhelming. It's that I don't actually know what the right answer is most of the time. It's what it feels like to them, yeah. and they kind of wonder if if this is such a good thing that God wants me to do, why doesn't He make it more clear what the right answer is? Yes. So what would you say to that? Yes, yes, I would say Amen. I'm right there with <laughs> you. I think I wrote this book because of that. Um, it doesn't feel like a privilege. This sounds, feels really confusing. And then, you know, you get married and you have children and then it multiplies. Oh, man. Uh, the, the choices just, and then they're making choices that you can't control. It's insane. Um, I would say I'm right there with you. And I know this is a not satisfying Barnes and Noble answer. Um, but that God is, is deeply and intimately concerned with the process of decision making, not just the product of mm. decision making. And so we are a product culture. We love the end product. We love the end cap. We want to be done with something. We want yep. to check it off our list. I'm just afraid that God is not most most like that. I think he does care about the choices that we make, but I think he's deeply concerned with the processing time that he gets with us in making decisions. Mm. And so I use this in ex- as an example. My children love rocks. They are I, I don't know if it's like a boy phase or maybe they're just nerdy I, I science. I think it is. No, yeah. I think okay. all kids just, Gems. they just want them. Yeah, rocks. and rock hammer, all the things. We've done all kinds of, oh, I think this is a fossil. I don't think that's yeah. a fossil. <laughs> Everything's a fossil. Everything is, oh, like this is very ancient and old. Yeah. I think this is from a lava rock. <laughs> um, so they've all passed through the rock. We have like seven rock books at our house and I'm a nerd, so I totally am all yeah. about it. Um, igneous, sedimentary, all the things. But... <laughs> They went through a phase where they just wanted all the shiny polished rocks. And so I could have taken them to Balboa Park, which is all our kind of museums like the Washington Mall, and bought them very overpriced, ridiculously shiny polished rocks from the museum bookstore. Mm -hmm. And they would have appreciated them and it would have been fine. Um, But instead... I was like, my children are into this. I want to get time with my children. And so much to my husband's chagrin, I bought us a rock tumbler. Oh, yeah. Which I don't know if you know this, but they are the loudest, most energy. Don't buy one. They're the loudest, most energy consuming thing you've ever done. And it's not like a a quick and then overnight. It's it's a long time. It's weeks. Like you change change the grit of the things that are in there. Was it it a hand cranking one? No, this was an electronic one that was like... (laughs) <laughs> in the garage for weeks 
um, we actually kind of stopped midway through the process and said they are semi-polished and yeah. they're fine for us. And you went back to the museum and bought those and, polished And trucks. then I thought, you know, <laughs> this is bad. But, but the analogy obviously breaks down. But point being, it was because I wanted to spend time with my kids. And, and they treasure those rocks way more than the shiny ones that I could have bought them because they're their rocks. And we did it together. Mm. And so I think similarly... God appreciates the process with his children. He wants the process time. He wants to the intimacy that comes from us making choices and inviting us in. He wants to make us image bearers. He wants to make us those who have, you know, Paul says in Corinthians, the mind of Christ. And that's a process of making real decisions and having real consequences and going, I'm not going to do that next time. I've learned from my mistake. God is into the process because he's making us ready and meet to be with him in glory. And so I think that making decisions is one of the things that presses us into the throne of God, that presses us into the lap of God, Mm. that lays us out in dependence before God. So, um, It's Jehoshaphat, I do believe, who um, armies are coming in the Old Testament, and I think it's in Chronicles, and um, and he he lays out his plans before the Lord, and he basically just says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Um, No, that's Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat said that, but Asa is the one who had all these plans. He got all these counselors to say, should we go against this battle? Should we not go against this battle? And then it says he just laid them out before the Lord, independence and prayed. And I just think that process of like gathering the information, laying things out before the Lord, I think he's really delighted in that, Mm. that dependence that comes from that. And not in like a, ha-ha, you're dependent on me kind of way, but in a, you're being trained, you're becoming mature, you're learning how to think like a believer, and and you have real agency in the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah. So. I'm I'm always surprised that even, even as I know these and believe these truths about God and about myself and my decisions and his power, um, I think for a lot of us, it can still be, if you kind of take a step back and look at yourself as you, your process. Uh, we, we are often very slow to lay all these things out before God. We kind of, we do everything else we can do to try to figure it out. Yes. And then the very last resort, we might say, oh, maybe I should maybe go should to God pray. in this. Yeah. Maybe I should ask the Lord what he would do. Yeah. 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 It's not having the effect that God would intend for those decisions. Yeah. So what would you say to the person who, who would say, you know, I, I have uh, done I've tried to do both of those things. I've really tried to go take this to God. I've tried to hmm. study his scriptures. I've tried to get counsel from other people. And th- I've made my, my two column list of pros and cons. Yep. And I'm still just not sure what to do. Yep. Uh, what advice would you give to that person? Yeah. So I think that's a layered question. Um, I think one of the things that we talk about early on in the book is just um, understanding and defining before we talk about God's will. like Because that's ultimately what we're trying to ask. God, what's your will for this specific situation? And, um, and so one of the things that is helpful and that we have to understand that I think, and it doesn't take away decision-making, but it puts it in its proper place. And that's the distinction between God's revealed will and his hidden will. Hmm. And so... Um, I was just sitting in on a talk downstairs and um, she, you know, she said, she quoted from First Thessalonians where it's this, Paul says, get, get ready. This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, right? Like this idea of, <laughs> let me, t- I know the answer. The answer is his revealed will for you is his word is that you would obey his word. Yeah. And so um, we, we gloss over that because that's not the answer we want to hear. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear, what did you want me to do? It's not specific enough. I want you to know if I'm supposed to go here or not go here or major in this or not major in this or adopt this child or not adopt this child or foster or not foster. Um, But we can't just gloss over it first because we have to remember the promises of this. Everything 
that we need for life and godliness is contained in the scriptures. God says you have everything you need contained here that you need to know to live a life that's holy and honoring to me. We know that, uh, you know, the writer of Hebrews said, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces, right? Um, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. So God's, God's will is not that confusing. Um, it's, his, it's his will. I mean, his, it's his word. God's will is not that confusing. It's his word. We know what God ultimately wants. Mm. He wants us to walk in obedience to him and be conformed to his image. And, and that's significant. That's his revealed will is his word. Now, that's nuanced, and it's confusing, and there's different genres, and there's tons to talk about there. Um, but then there's this idea of his hidden will. And so his hidden will would be, you can only see it looking backwards. And it's basically his providential or, or, ordaining and care for all of, all of our decisions. Mm. And, and kind of his Romans 8.28, all things are going to work together for good for those who love God and are or, called according to his purpose. And so the thing about providence is that you can't see it until you're looking backwards. So you can't know his hidden will until it's already happened. Mm. And then you look back and you go, I, looking back, I see why I went to the college that I went to because I grew and was discipled and nurtured there in my faith and I met my husband there. When I was making that college decision, I did not know that that was God's hidden will for me. All I knew is that I wanted to walk with God and I needed to find a place where I could go to college. And there was lots of choices where I could do that. But looking back, I can see God's providential hand in sovereignly allowing that decision, mm. right? And so this, this doesn't change the fact that we still make decisions. Yeah. But it helps us to go, I'm wasting my time if I am trying to figure out the hidden will of God. Mm, yeah. I, I, I find out the will of God as I walk in his word and I, I make choices. So, so would you say then for the revealed will then... Is it the case then we shouldn't always be thinking in terms of, I got to find that one exact right path? Yes. Is, yes. There, is there more, in, experientially, would you say there's more freedom for us in there's, decision making? There's a lot of freedom. Now, obviously, when it comes to what the scriptures have clearly prohibited, that's not a place of Christian liberty. But there are a lot of areas of Christian liberty. And and so I, I wish I had my, my notes with me, but um, Jerry Sitzer basically says, for, for the believer who's walking in the revealed will of God and, and trying to follow his word in the spirit, not living in unconfessed sin, seeking counsel, all the things that we know are the right answers, right? Um, he says, there are a thousand choices that could be God's will. The one that becomes God's will for them is the one that they make a choice to do, hmm. right? And so it's yeah. this idea of, I see God's will looking backwards. We do not know his hidden will until it happens. And so this is what Moses, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he's talking to the people of God, and he says, for the secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to God. I do not know his, I do not know how many days I have on this earth. I do not know when Christ is going to return. I do not know the condition of my children's health for the future. I do not know, I don't know a thousand things. Those are hidden things that are, belong to God, and I will know them as they unfold. Um, but the revealed things, so Moses says, the hidden things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children, that we might obey them and keep them forever. Mm. And so this distinction between the hidden and the revealed will of God, um, it, it again, it doesn't solve the problem, but it helps us to know I am, I am I'm hitting my head against the wall yeah. if I'm trying to understand. It gives us such, it should give us freedom and levity. And would, you, would you say sometimes we just need to pick? It's, it's yeah, yeah, it's it's as simple as that. I think there's a process. So in the book, we talk about like, you know, just like when you're painting a room, the preparation for painting a room is far more painstaking and annoying than actually painting the room. <laughs> you got to get all the stuff right. out. You got to put the tape the tape down, and you got to, you know, do all the trim, and then you got to 
put get, the tarps down. Get your down, brushes. All the, it's so much prep work. And then you paint the wall. The same thing is true, I think, with decision making. I think there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. I think there's a lot of praying, fasting, asking the Lord for help, seeking wise and godly counsel, um, gathering the facts, doing your pros and cons list. But there are times, not always, where having done all of that, you simply make a choice. And there's nothing wrong in, you know, again, having gone through the right steps of, you know, it, should I drink alcohol if I'm underage? No, you shouldn't. That's not a decision. There's no decision to be made there. The, the scriptures are super clear. Um, you should obey the laws of the land. Um, but if a, if, a, if a student is coming down to a choice and they have to choose between, you know, snowy Montana campus and a sunny San Diego campus and they hate the sun, there's nothing wrong with them saying, I think I will go to Montana State because I love snow. Like, th- there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. And I think sometimes as believers, we're scared of desire. We don't know where to put it. Mm. Um, and and some people lead only with desire and yeah. decisions. I want this, therefore it must be true. I want it badly, therefore it must be right. Um, but the other extreme to that is it, it must be too good to be true if I want this. Yeah. It's, it's too that's, easy. That's not a good reason for me to... Yeah. Move in that direction. Right. And I think when, when there's a tie like that, it's okay. Uh, actually, St. Ignatius talks about this. Um, he, he talks about spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation, which I wouldn't say is a good starting point. I do not, so you don't start with what makes me feel consoled when I think about a decision. But this is like a tiebreaker, having gone through the process, yeah. having sifted through the word, having known, you know, for example, um, there was a point when I graduated college where I thought I could do some, maybe some, some research, some scientific research stuff, be on a team. And there was an opportunity to do that, or there was an opportunity to, do, um, to maybe do some ministry. Either one of those could have honored the Lord. Either one of those is right and good, right? That's okay. And so the thought of sitting in a little cubicle and like looking at a screen all day made me want to cry. <laughs> that spiritual desolation. Um, and the thought of getting to disciple women and and study the bible made my heart come alive that's spiritual consolation yeah and there's nothing wrong with that both of those could have been honoring to god how, how big a factor should our just desires and inclinations and just uh yeah you know the idea of personal fulfillment even yep. how big a role should that play in our decision making obviously let's put the put the the caveats in place that shouldn't be the only or even the dominant right. thing but do you think we often downplay that role of that in just in the decisions we're going to make in our life or do you think it's it's the other way I think it depends on the personality and the moment but I do think there's tendencies to do both I think in our culture I think the fear of even I even wrestle with do I even put that concept of spiritual consolation and desolation even though it's hundreds of years old um, Mm. in this book because our culture is so you do you what if you feel it it's it is right chase after whatever you desire um but that's not the Christian way of life, right? So I, I think there's a fear of, of, of sounding like the culture in mm-hmm. that. Um, but I do think that God has implanted desires in different people. And he is, I'm always astounded when I talk to people about their work and what they do. And, and they get, you know, they just, they light up talking about, you know, um, a friend who's, who's working for Google doing really cool stuff, programming and data informatic, things that my brain can't even comprehend. And he just literally just starts talking fast like I am right now. <laughs> and he just gets excited. And um, I'm like, God wired you to do this. Like, you know, or another friend who, when she was, I think she was like in second grade and she asked for a filing cabinet for Christmas. Oh, wow. 
She asked for a filing. Like, that's, who does that? That's organized. Type A. Because God had wired her a certain way. Mm. She's administrative. And she just wanted to do administrative things like have a filing. What do you even put in the filing cabinet <laughs> at that age? But, but because God has wired her that way. And I think there's so much freedom for us to live out some of the um, redemptive desires that God has given us. Um, however, they always have to be, and this is where like people like Elizabeth Elliot are such a good check to our culture, right? I mean, she, her thing went in her decision-making book, which I kind of pulled heavily from in this book, um, is if there's, if there's a harder way, choose it. That's kind of mm. her, that was her, which totally fits her personality. What, what book was that? Um, her book, um, Elizabeth Elliot's book, uh, God's Guidance is Slow and Certain, Slow and Steady or Slow and Certain Light. Um, and she just, at the end, you know, it's just her, her parts of her story and processing, but she basically says, if there's a hard, if you're stuck between two things, choose the harder way. I, I don't know that that's biblical. I don't, I think that's her personality yeah. and her experience and yeah. it totally fits. I mean, look at what God did through her life. Mm. I would not go so far as to say that, um, because I don't think that's always how God works. I don't think he's always a hard master. I, mm. Now, that being said, I think our posture in making decisions needs to be open-handed. Don't always ignore the hard way. Yes, <laughs> but that, and, and there are times when God calls us to do really hard things, and we're not going to want to do them. So Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, I don't want, like, is there any other way? But he ends it with, nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. And so God is going to call us to do hard things. And if we only do things that are comfortable to us, we're not going to grow, right? We're not going to be, we're not going to be changed. And, um, but at the same time, just because something is hard, we're not, we're we're not ascetics. We don't think we have to be hard and masochistic to our bodies in order to be godly Mm -hmm. either. And so you asked about where does desire fit in? And, And so one of the tools in the book is just this idea of a dashboard of decisions. Like my friend is in pilot school and I mean, studying for hours and hours every day to try to pass all these tests to fly planes, which makes me feel good that the people <laughs> who are flying our planes are actually going through a process, a really vigorous process. But, you know, just acclimating himself to all the gauges in the cockpit. And we have we have all these gauges for decision-making that we, we pull from. And I think desire should be one of our gauges. Mm. I think it's important for it. I just don't think it needs to be the center gauge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, the gospel gauge needs to be our center <laughs> gauge. And then f- when we have the gospel gauge in place and we understand our identity in Christ and we understand that I don't have to um, be a cr- like an incredible Fortune 500 company to be content um, I don't have to chase that because I know who I am in Christ. I'm improved of in Christ. Therefore, I can teach teach kids and not be paid well because God has wired me to do this, right? When we have the gospel gauge in place, it puts the other ones and they start to get more right-sized. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I talk about is just an idolatry gauge, like our idols inform our decisions. And so it's important to know, well, what are my, what are like the core idols of my heart? So for me, it's significance. I long to, to leave a I want to leave a legacy I mm. want to do significant things for the Lord I want to and so significance is always allowed now when I was parenting my little kids I didn't feel significant at the time mm. staying at home didn't feel and that was hard it was a hard decision to make but looking back I'm so thankful I didn't let my I, my idol gauge yeah. make the decision for me whether I was going to you know be home with my children in their early years I'm so thankful that I did that um, and so you have to know what your idols are and how they inform your decisions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if your idol is comfort, then you need to know, okay, I need to right-size that one by the gospel because I, given the choice left to my flesh, I'm going to make decisions that are comfortable and easy. When it comes to idols, that kind of gets back to that idea of motivation and decision-making. It's not always, we're often so focused on that, the actual choice 
We don't think a lot about how we're getting to that choice. Yes. Uh, have you ever struggled to even realize idols that might be influencing your motives and things? I think that's something uh, we can sometimes maybe have a hard time even discerning my own motivations for why I'm choosing oh, something. Oh, totally. Which is, I, th- I think, why we need the body of Christ. Um, I don't think we know, and even just good question askers in our life, people that say, are you doing this? Um, are you choosing to go to this conference because you're seeking vainglory? Or are you going because you really feel like God's calling you to go? Or are you saying no to this option um, because you're afraid and mm. you're not trusting the God? Or are you saying no to this option in faith? Do you have friends who actually ask those questions of you? You know, I do. I think I do have friends like that. And in the book, I, I talk about um, trusted trespassers. And so this idea of trusted trespassers is um, people that you say, you have the keys to my life. And you get to go trespass and snoop around mm. um, because I know I know you love the Lord and I know you love me. I know you know the God. And this is a big one. You know the gospel. Because there's a lot of people that, that know maybe God's word and know you but aren't gospel fluent. Mm. Like you have to be fluent in the gospel if you're going to be poking around in someone's life. Because that can be dangerous, painful. Uh, yeah, and, it, and incredibly like scary. And, and if you don't have someone who has gospel, really big gospel pants on that can <laughs> say, what I find in your heart is nasty, but you're loved. Um, or that motivation is scary, but, but Christ knows. And you're forgiven and you're walking in, in newness of life. So you have to, that's why I say you choose these people very carefully. But when you find a trusted, a trusted trespasser, and you don't need 20, you need a couple, um, maybe, maybe one or two, who can ask you the hard questions and, and, and don't just tell you what you want to hear, but say, what do you think is going on in your heart in this decision? Like, are you, do you think that's fear talking right now? Or do you think that's the Lord? Like, what, what's going on here? And, um, and even, even asking some of those cultural questions of like, um, okay, if, if uh, we have a lot of students in our, one of our campuses that we work with that are Asian and they come from an honor-shame culture. In an honor-shame culture, the question you ask is not, immediately like is it right or wrong or can I do it or is it going to make me successful it's how is this going to look for my family hmm. what is this going to bring um, honor or shame onto my family and so they they sometimes have to be pressed out of hey are you just doing this because this is what you're supposed to do or is this really what God's calling you to do like are you doing this in obedience to the Lord yeah. and so you're right I don't think we know those things because we're living in our own skin it's the water yeah. that we swim in yeah. but I think having people ask good questions of just why would you do that if you chose that why do you think you would choose what do you think you would get if you made this decision what is it that you're after in this things um what do you think about your life is going to change if x mm-hmm. y or z mm-hmm. um, and learning to be good question askers to each other um, and just to be safe places to process um what are my motivations here and they're always mixed so you know yeah. my husband always says we never done anything from a pure motive pure motive that doesn't exist because even our tears of repentance have to be washed mm. um but it's good to have people asking questions to help us kind of go well what is going on here and then a lot of times like i said you kind of get down to a tie break and and you kind of say okay lord i'm gonna choose one of these mm-hmm. and that's the you know sometimes we're paralyzed by that and yeah. god is just like i'm gonna be with you either way yeah. like i'm gonna be with you you make I just think of the prodigal and I think about all the string of bad choices that the prodigal made, um, that the, the younger brother made. Um, and, and I think about the way the father received him back. And so not that I'm saying, let's go disobey. I'm just saying, make a decision, yeah. but know that you're always one decision away from running back to the Lord, yeah. repenting and being close to him. And, mm. um, uh, yeah, Let, let's speak to that a little bit. Cause I think that's, uh, in your book, you talk about three 
dangers that often await us after we've made a decision. And yes. sometimes the, f the fear of those dangers or looking ahead to the potential of those dangers can really uh, hamstring our decision-making in the present. What yep. are those three things? So I, I, I'm, I need to refresh my memory. It's been a while since I looked at that, that part. But um, definitely fear, um, regret, um, shame, like at making the wrong choice. Um, kind of like buyer's remorse, like just did I make the right thing? Like constantly looking back yeah. over your shoulder. And and I think the freedom of, of those who walk in the gospel is to know we make a choice, we, we evaluate our choice, and then we, we can course correct. We learn from our choice. So, you know, for example, schooling decisions, that's a huge one when you're a parent. <laughs> you know, are you going to homeschool or are you going to... Are you going to hybrid school? Are you going to public school? Are you going to charter school? And and it felt like such a weighty decision when our kids were little, especially when we moved to California. Like, oh, no, what's going to happen? Mm. And and it was just so good to go, you know, we can try this for a couple of months. And if we don't like it, we can try something else. Like, it's we can course correct. Yeah. We don't have to live in this, oh, this is the end-all, be-all for the rest of our lives. We can course correct. And um and we don't have to live in regret of these decisions. I think if we're if we're following a proper process, we can look back and say, God, you providentially have guided me thus far. Mm. Now, what am I to do next? How can I learn from these decisions yeah. that I've made? Yeah, well, how, what would you say to the person who would say, you know, looking back, I can see that I made the wrong decision. I'm confident of that for the wrong reasons. My motives were not what they should have been. What, what, what should the person do now? Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, is it a question of circumstantially and situationally, is it a question of sin? Because it's, if it's a question of sin, like I, I'm walking in sin, then I think the first thing we do is we can repent mm -hmm. and we confess and we do exactly what the prodigal did. And we said, I, I shall arise and go to my father and who is running to meet us. I mean, he doesn't even get his I'm sorry speech out because the, <laughs> the father is there yeah. to grab him up. And um, so I, I think there's that. Um, if it's, if it was like a, uh, so this is a good example. Uh, a mentor, um, when I was teaching, I taught high school for a year, and there was science. This, yes, science and literature. I got to do both. <laughs> a little private school. Um, no teacher training. Had no idea what I was doing. I apologize to all of those parents. <laughs> um, but there's a a, a a man there. Um, his, his name was Dr. Wines. I actually talk about him in the book. But he um, he was a brilliant um, academic professor. Um, for anatomy and physiology and in, at a medical school, very prestigious medical school. And he would say he was good at it. He was really good at it. Got open doors. He had a ministry through it. And he hated it. He hated it. And he had started reading Piper and the idea that Christian hedonism and God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And he thought, I am not satisfied in God when I do this work. Hmm. I hate it. And so he took a major pay cut and and went to seminary. Now he's a pastor of a small church in a rural town. But while he was there, he was in my little school. And we would just talk. We would talk about future. We'd talk about life. How do you make decisions? And and he would just, I mean, so yeah, he would look back and go, I made a decision based off of what I was good at and everyone told me was prestigious and right and good. There was a need and I could meet it. I realized, I don't think this is the decision I wanted to make. I, I don't want to do this anymore. So... I course corrected and, mm. and I was willing to make an action step. And that doesn't mean everyone should just quit their job if they're not in their job for the proper yeah. motivation. But um, that's the joy of freedom in Christ. Like we have freedom to make real choices with real consequences. And now if it's a marriage question, like, oh, no, I think I married the wrong person. Right. Then you don't just get to go, oh, well, let's course correct and get yeah. out of here. Right. <laughs> there's like, limits to that. There's, there's situational factors to it. But I think the first thing is if it was to sin, 
you repent. And if it was an unwise decision, I think you process it with the Lord and you you say, what can I learn from this unwise decision? How can I not repeat this unwise mm. decision? You know, for example, like binge watching Netflix. Is that a sin? No. I don't, but was that the best choice of your Friday night that night? I don't know. You need to process that with the Lord. But, but if you, if you go, oh, I feel funny about that decision. You can then go before the Lord and say, Lord, why do I feel funny? Okay. I shouldn't have done that. Or Mm. I shouldn't have said that to my child. Or I wish, I wish I would have told you more about this or not told you as much about this. Mm. We can course correct and walk in freedom in that. And one, that's where I think God's a confidence in God's sovereignty over those decisions Yes, uh, can be so comforting too. Yes. Well, and if you think about, um, that just the, the phrase that God writes straight with crooked sticks. Like I, I make, I, he's making pa- straight paths with my crazy decisions mm. and he's working at Romans eight twenty eight together for good, for the glory of God. Like that, that is powerful. That is beautiful. And that God takes all these wayward choices of ours. And if you look at the scriptures, you don't have to look further than the scriptures to see stories of people who botched it, who botched it. And yet God graciously wrote them into the story of, of, of what he was doing in the world and and is as far overcompensated for mm. those things and so just that that nature and the character of who God is um, and that he's he cares about the process he's ready to receive us he's very ready for us to repent and to run and to learn he's not an angry father mm, <laughs> he yeah. doesn't chide um, huh. he's uh, so another example of that is um, Narnia so when Edmund makes the bad decision, right? White witch, mm. Turkish delight, Turkish delight, all that Turkish delight, which I don't, I've, have you ever had that? It's not that good. I don't, I don't understand why he was so tempted by it. Maybe if it was a Reese cup or something, maybe, but, um, and, and then he, he finally gets put right t- with Aslan and the white witch is there and, and, and the, his, his siblings are there and, and he, it just says, he just kept looking at Aslan. He just kept looking at Aslan. Like they'd had a little private, and I love that, that, um, Aslan took him away privately, had a little a little moment with him, kind of like Jesus did with Peter, right? Like they had their moment there. Hey, we're, re- we're reinstated. You're forgiven and loved. And then it was like, just keep looking at Aslan. Just keep looking at Aslan. Just keep looking at Aslan. Like, mm-hmm. no, I am forgiven and I am loved. I am not the sum of my, my past choices. Shameful though some of them may be, I am the inheritor of Christ's choices. Mm-hmm. And that is my identity. And from that identity, I am now free to make the kind of choices that can seek to honor God. And I think God is pleased with our want to want. I think he's pleased with our want to want to make decisions that honor him. And I, I, you know, I see, I have a son who's very much like me. He's perfectionistic and ordered and linear and, and he just wants to make the right decisions. And sometimes I'm like, oh my goodness, just make that, you know, I'm just like, come (laughs) on, buddy, you're, you're, you're loved. You're going to be fine. You want to go or not go to the movie, you know? Um, so just having that perspective of, of, God's good fatherly nature, I think, helps to transform yeah. this decision-making process. Yeah, totally. Well, Amy, thank you so much for talking with me today and I think helping all of us to think maybe a little bit more theologically about the decisions that confront us. We appreciate it. That was Amy Joseph on Making Decisions That Honor God. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Demystifying Decision-Making, A Practical Guide. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. 
Crosswhite is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.